And so this morning, I'm especially excited as we uh, come to close our series over the seven letters to the seven churches. And as we look and as we wrap this up, we're going to look at the letter that was written to perhaps the worst church of them all. Now, the church in Sardis provided another extremely negative example, but at least the church in Sardis, uh, they, they had a reputation of being alive, but they were spiritually dead and useless. But at least in that church, according to verse number four, it says you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." So, so at least they, they had a glimmer of hope within that church of things changing for the good and for the glory of God. Now the church in Laodicea, uh, that was the one church that our Lord had absolutely nothing good or positive to say. Imagine a church being so bad that it might as well not even exist. A church so bad that it does nothing good for the kingdom of God, or for the glory of God. A church so bad that it just disgusts our Lord. Today, we're going to look at what our Lord has to say to the indifferent, to the complacent, to the lethargic, to the self-satisfied, to the half-hearted, and to the apathetic. And so we're going to begin by first looking at the characteristic of the one who sends the letter. And we see that in verse number 14. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Christ identifies himself to the uh, church in Laodicea as the Amen. The, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. Amen literally means so be it. It is a term that we use to close a prayer as a declaration. Uh, we also use it as a declaration of truth uh, when a statement gets made. So we end our prayers with amen, so be it. And then when a, when a truth is declared that is, that is factual, that is honoring to God, we typically will say things like amen, means so be it. So, so this is what, what Jesus is saying in Isaiah chapter 65, verse number 16. It declares all who invoke a blessing or take an oath will do so by the God of truth. That word truth, in the Hebrew, is the word that we get amen from. And so truth is equivalent to amen. So Jesus is declaring his characteristic here is that he is ultimately and, and clearly the one who is trustworthy and truthful in all that he does and all that he says. And so he says, i got some truth to bring to you today. Notice the criticism from verses 15 through 17. First of all, you'll notice that like the sister church in Sardis, Laodicea receives no compliments from our Lord. And so we begin, we'll pick up in verse number 15. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, for that you were either cold or, or hot. So that you're, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These believers are neither hot nor are they cold. It's, a, it's an emphasis that's made twice. They're identified as being lukewarm. Now, a common misinterpretation of this scripture says that being hot means to have uh, spiritual uh, fever, to be excited, to be uh, uh, on fire for our Lord. And then uh, cold means outright antagonism uh, to the things of God. And, And that God would either prefer us to outright reject Him or to be totally on fire for Him, but nowhere in between. That is not what this text is saying. Not at all. The point of the rebuke is not because of a lack of zeal and enthusiasm. If so, at least lukewarm would be close, would be you know getting better on your way to being extremely excited and on fire for our Lord. That's not the point that Jesus is making here. The point that he's making is the utter worthlessness of what this congregation has done and what they are doing. And Jesus communicates this truth in the imagery that he uses for this church. He spoke in a way that they would understand. He, he, he illustrated it in, in a manner to which the people, as they received it, they would be like, aha, I get it. And so we have to be careful with interpretations. We ought not to try to force an interpretation to say something that we want it to say. We need to understand where it came from, to whom it was written, what was going on culturally in their world, so that we can make the proper application to what is being said. So we need to know a little bit more about the church in Laodicea. Did you know? Raise your hand for me. How many of you knew that this church is identified elsewhere in Scripture? Anyone? Two. Yeah, uh, uh, we often overlook this fact. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians. Let's go back to Colossians real quick. Because to understand the church in Laodicea, you need to understand uh, where it's located. Like Laodicea would have been part of a a tri-city type of community. And I want you to go to the the book of Colossians because I want to show you something there that perhaps you've never seen or at least paid attention to before. Okay, so you're there. Uh, Let's go to Colossians chapter 4. So, so Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and, and he says, look at chapter 4, verse number 13. He says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So those are the two other communities that you need to know. Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. Those three communities are, are, are recognized in their close proximity one to another. 
Paul is writing a letter to the Colossians, and in that letter, he's addressing and he's including the church in Laodicea. So much so, go back to look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, it begins, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. How many of you have never seen that before? How many of you are actually awake? I just asked you, be beginning, have you heard of it? Two of you raise your hand, and then I say, how many of you have never seen that before? And you sit, come on now. You've never seen it before, raise your hand. Okay, there you go, welcome to the service. Man. Okay, so he's writing, Paul's addressing the church, and he's dealing with, with, with false teaching, and he's warning them about it. And in this letter to the church, uh, uh, the, the Colossian church, he's including Hierapolis and Laodicea. Oh, if they'd only followed what Paul had to say. Well, let me highlight a couple of things. Look at uh, chapter 1 in Colossians. Chapter 1 says in verse number 9, and he says, And so, from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now we know he's not just praying for the Colossians. He's also praying for those in Hierapolis and for those in Laodicea. And he says that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Oh, if they'd only listened. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul's instruction to him in verse number 2 was to set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want you to understand, like, I'm not making a stretch to, to tell you how, how Paul was including the church in Laodicea and the church in Hierapolis as he's addressing uh, the Colossians. Because the text tells us that. Go back to chapter 4. Now look at verse number 16. And he says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then he says, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And we don't have that letter. It's a lost letter. But oh, how interesting it would be to know what that letter actually said. So, so these, these communities are, are, are connected together. I want to show you a map real quick. Look at the screen behind me. Here's a map of, of the churches uh, that received the letter. And, and so you'll notice that little island that's off there, the island of, of Patmos, that's where, where, where John is writing these letters. It's where the, the book of Revelation comes from. And then it starts this journey to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, and then it goes around in a big giant circle. And hello. And then what you need to see is in Laodicea, I want you to notice the close proximity there to uh, Colosseum. You see that? Just a few miles southeast. 
Now, Hierapolis would be located in that line between uh, Laodicea and Philadelphia, kind of where that L is. That's where the third community would be located. So these three cities were connected together. They're like a tri-city community. There would be roads um, built by the Romans that would connect them together. But they're also connected in another unique way. Laodicea did not have adequate supply of water. And so for, for them to have water for its community, then they had to pipe in through some ancient aqueduct system waters from other places. Their water came from two sources. They received water from Colosseum and water from Hierapolis. The water that came from Hierapolis came from hot springs. So it was, it was hot water. Hot water that was like uh, medicinal water. Refreshing, soothing. And then the water that they piped in through Colosseum, well that was cold water. So they had the cold springs. It was pure. It was refreshing water. But the problem that they had in Laodicea is by the time the hot medicinal waters from Hierapolis... By the time it arrived to Laodicea, it would be warm, tempid, disgusting. The same thing with the cold, refreshing springs that came from Colosseum. By the time that it arrived, it was no longer cold, cool, refreshing. It was lukewarm. Disgusting. I mean, like compared to coffee. We drink hot coffee and cold coffee but lukewarm coffee is nasty. And if you drink lukewarm coffee, there's just something wrong with you. <laughs> Maybe that's your takeaway from the service today. <laughs> so what's unique is that this word lukewarm appears only here in the New Testament. And Christ, his threat to spit spit them out of his mouth, literally means that church makes him want to vomit. He says he's so disgusted. He, it just makes him nauseated, sick. That, that he will judge and reject them because of their self-righteousness and their attitude of self-sufficiency. What's even worse then all of their deficiencies is Jesus' declaration that they don't even recognize it. They can't even see it for themselves. Look back at verse number 17. Verse 17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked the church had deceived itself about its spiritual condition they were living a fool's paradise they were proud of being part of a church that was literally about to be rejected by god they were wretched poor they were naked and blind to it all 
find it interesting that the Apostle Peter teaches that when a believer is not growing in the Lord, then their spiritual vision is affected. Let me show you. I had it on the screen, but I took it out because I want you to see it in your scripture. So go a few pages to your left and turn to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. So again, this is the Apostle Peter, and he's teaching us that uh, when, when we're not growing in the Lord, we're not growing in our, there's no progress in our spiritual development, then ultimately our, our, our spiritual vision is affected. Look at what he says, Second Peter chapter 1, let's begin with verse number 5. He says, for this very reason, make every effort, and I'd underline that, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So so he's saying, make every effort. In other words, spiritual growth, spiritual progress is not something that's just going to happen on its own. We've got to be disciplined. We've got to be dedicated. We've got to make every effort to make sure it's happening in our lives. It's not something that we can expect to happen casually or on its own. It takes great determination from us and for us in order for us to grow in our Christ-like attitude. We can't just sit back and say, well, God will do His work in me eventually. It says make every effort. In other words, knock off the lame excuses and make every effort. You didn't like that one. Okay, I got you. Get verse number 8 says, for if these qualities are yours and, so if you have these qualities, qualities of, of verse number 6 and verse number 5, so if you have these qualities and you're increasing, then they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have them and they're increasing, then you're not going to be ineffective and you're not going to be unfruitful. Verse number 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The fact of the matter is that the Laodiceans, they could not see themselves for who they really were. They were so wrapped up in themselves that they had become apathetic in their concern for the lost. They had had become ineffective in declaring and displaying the glory of God. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 3 and let me show you the command that our Lord has for this church. We'll pick up chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse number 18. And there he says, um, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen 
and salve to, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. In these verses, I just want to point out three special statements that our Lord makes. First of all, he starts with an explanation. Look back at verse number 19. The first part says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Make no mistake, Jesus still loved these lukewarm saints. Even though they had ignored and been neglecting Him, God loved them. And He planned to discipline them as proof of His love. It says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline. Don't be upset when He corrects you. For the Lord corrects those He loves, just as the Father corrects a child in whom He delights. So it's not out of anger that Jesus tells the church that they are wrong, that they're sinning, that, that they're doomed, that they literally disgust him. It's not out of anger that he says it. He says it to them out of love. They must know what they're doing is wrong so that they're able to correct their behavior. God disciplines those whom he loves. Can you think back in your own life? Can you think of times when you've had to be disciplined or corrected by God? Knowing that he loves you so much that he's no longer going to allow you to continue down the, the same destructive path that you're on. He'll bring in some discipline. He'll bring in correction so as to get your attention, so as to raise awareness, so that you can know how much he loves you and how he wants us to change so that we can honor and glorify him. Like, think back on your life. If you can't think back and see times in your life where God has brought discipline and correction into your life, oh, I caution you today. To make sure that you truly belong to Him. It says, again, Proverbs 3, don't reject the Lord's discipline. And don't be upset when He corrects you. The Lord corrects those that He loves, just as the Father corrects a child in whom He delights. Jesus wants us to see our wrong. He wants us to correct our behavior he wants us to change our lives so that we can fully bring Him the honor and the glory that He's due. Ultimately, Jesus wants us to possess the fullness of life and the hope of eternity. Okay, so He gives us an explanation there at the beginning of verse number 19. And then He gives an exhortation. It goes on to say, So be zealous and repent. Repent. The church at Laodicea had to repent of their pride. They needed to humble themselves before the Lord. Look, the message of repent is throughout all of Scripture. In these letters to the churches that needed correction and discipline, 
You know, there were a couple of churches that were good churches and they received no criticism. But for all the other churches, the message that Jesus had for them was ultimately repent. Repent. That's the message He has for us today. He's still calling us to repentance. A lot of churches won't talk about it today. But we will. Just curious. Maybe if you're writing, taking notes, you can write it down. What's the one area, not the, how about what's a, what's and, what's, what's, what is one area where the Lord is calling repentance in your life from? Pride? Laziness? Stubbornness? Anger? Unforgiveness? Resentment? Sexual impurity? Drunkenness? Idolatry? Look around. Ain't none of us perfect. We're all, hopefully, we're all a work in progress. God doing his work of sanctification in and through our lives. His message is still true for us. Repent. Look, you know what my word says. Oh, and then if you don't know what his word says, well, then repent from that. Because you should. And in knowing what the word says, about our lives and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live in the areas that we don't measure up to his perfect standard. He's calling us to repent. So, so Jesus has for this church an explanation and then he gives them that exhortation, repent, and then he, he get, extends an invitation. Go back to verse number 20. Oh, how this verse is so misused. Verse number 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We so often incorrectly use these verses or use that verse to lead lost people to Jesus. Try to tell a lost person that, you know, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. Would you just invite him in? That's not the application of, of the text. That's not what he's saying. The, the, the application is to the believer. The Lord stand outside of the church in Laodicea. He stood outside the church and yet he spoke to the individual inside the church. He says, if any man, not if the whole congregation, now although he wants the entire congregation to open the door of fellowship to him, the individual is ultimately the one that must decide. And notice that, that when you invite him in, when you are zealous and you repent and you invite him in, notice how the supper room now becomes the throne room. Let's keep going. Look back to 20. Let's see it again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him 
and he with me. There's the supper room. Now verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to sit with him on his throne is another symbol of the fact that we are called, we are able, we are invited to rule and to reign with Christ through all eternity. The supper room becomes the throne room. If we'll just be zealous and repent. Now, let me walk us back real quick through these seven letters to these seven different churches because what we ultimately need to do is we need to take an honest look an inventory and evaluation of our own lives. And I wonder which one of these seven churches would most reflect our struggle or our life or our situation today. These seven churches are remarkably complete in, in its treatment of problems that churches face today. Let me highlight that reality. Look back in, on chapter Two. The church of Ephesus is where we started. Here the problem that's being identified is the recurring danger of, of, of losing our first love. Verse number four says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So it's the recurring danger of losing that first love. Does that describe you today? Then he writes to the church in Smyrna. Look at verse number 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So, so here, in this letter, we see the downfall of being afraid to suffer for the cause of God and for the glory of the Father. And then look at the church in Pergamum. Look at verse number 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Ultimately, the church in Pergamum had the problem of doctrinal defection. They, they didn't hold true to biblical doctrine. And, and then we keep on working our way. We get to the, to the church in Thyatira. Look at verse number 20. It says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So whereas Pergamon had the problem of doctrinal defection, the church of Thyatira, they had the problem of moral defection. We get into chapter 3. Chapter 3, um, the, the last part of verse number 1 says, I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So here the warning is a call to, to, to be very careful about spiritual deadness. It's a call to wake up. In the church in Philadelphia, go down to verse number, 
Oh, verse number 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Here's the warning. It's a warning against not holding fast to the Word of God. And then we wrap it up in Laodicea. Back to verse number 15. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's the danger of spiritual complacency. Wondering, do you fit into any of those categories today? If so, the message our Lord has for you, repent. Repent. Now as to the issue of being lukewarm, let me ask you a few questions. Do you have a desire for evangelism and missions? Do you have a desire for evangelism and missions? Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, one of my favorite verses in the Scriptures, says that after this you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's promise to the believer is that He will give the believer Holy Spirit power. Let me help you out. It takes no no power to sit and to soak or to sulk week after week after week. He says, if you, if you belong to me, then I'll give you power. I will give you the Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Do you have excitement about evangelism and missions? Are you telling people everywhere about Jesus? If not, what's the word? One person, repent. Are you fully committed to, pers- per- to the pursuit of a holy and peaceful life? Again, are you fully committed to the pursuit of a holy life and a peaceful life? Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14, it says to work. Again, there's that word, work. work. It doesn't come easy. It takes work. It says, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. So you fully committed to the work that is required so that you can live a holy and peaceful life. If not, then what we ought to do is, a few more of you are engaging, sweet. I'm going to ask three more questions, so hopefully by the end we'll all be there together. Are you faithful in gathering for corporate worship? Oh, I know you're here today. Where were you last week? The week before. Where will you be next week and the week after that? Are you faithful in gathering together in corporate worship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, tells us not to neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but to encourage one another, especially now that the day of His return is drawing near. Is, 
is the corporate gathering of God's people a priority in your life? If it's not, then God's call for us is to? Absolutely. Do you struggle to stay awake? To stay focused? Are you eager to learn? Scripture says in Romans chapter 15, verse number 4, says such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. And the Scripture gives us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Did you catch how beautiful that is? This was written long ago in order that it might teach us. So God has a lesson that He wants us to know. He's sending us to school and He's given us His text. And He has, oh, I have so much I want to show you. So much I want to tell you. So much that I want to teach you. But you're not going to be taught if you're not going to be in His Word. And he says, so I gave you the scriptures so that I can teach you and so that it can give you hope and so that it can give you encouragement as you wait patiently for what's to come. And some of you are struggling through feeling, I just feel hopeless about this or I feel down and downcast when if you're just getting God's word, you can see the hope and the encouragement that God has for us all. Do you enjoy telling other people about Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for the name and for the cause of our Lord? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 8 says, Never be ashamed to tell other people about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me either. Even though I'm in prison, with the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. How many of you are ready? How many of you are all in, prepared to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. We live in a hostile environment where the Word of God is not warmly welcomed every place that we go. We live in a culture in a day where we're trying to get so far away from the teachings of God's Word. Where are we? Why isn't that... We're active and engaged in addressing the concerns that face our country. How are we ever going to have legitimacy to a lost and dying world where we make a profession that I'm a believer, but we live our life like everybody else? They notice details in our lives. Whether you recognize it or not, They hear you say in one breath that church is important, that God is important, but they also know when you don't go. If it's that important, why aren't you engaged in church? If God is so important, then why why is it not saturating your conversation? Like, are you prepared to engage in warfare? I'm not getting all crazy. But there's a war that's going on. As children of God, empowered with the Holy Spirit, 
given the instructions from our Lord, then we need to study this and we need to readily apply it in our lives. We must be faithful, consistent in who we are and what we do. And we recognize that we're not perfect, so this is a place where grace will abound, where forgiveness will be granted, forgiveness will be sought after, restitution and reconciliation will will be pursued. And we realize that there's a likelihood that we're going to hurt one another's feelings, hopefully unintentionally, but either way, when that happens, we seek to make peace and to do right, to love each other, to encourage one another, to support each other, to serve alongside each other. We live in a community that is in desperate need of the hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And it's going to take more than a, than a holy huddle of individuals to take that message out to this community. It's going to require all of us. We've all got to be engaged in the battle that's at hand. Because if we sit back and we don't engage, then the enemy is going to advance even further with their agenda. And they've got a wicked, perverse, crooked agenda. So we've got to stand firm. We've got to be prepared. We've got to know what God's Word says to us. And in seeing His Word and reading His Word, we call ourselves to repentance. And we make a commitment to walk anew, walk afresh, and to do everything that we can to honor and please Him. If you wrote something down on that paper, what's the area in your life that God's calling you or bringing you to repentance, what are you going to do? In just a moment, we'll have a time of invitation. It becomes, honestly, the most awkward time in the church service. It really does. There have been times I actually, I've worked through the issue on, should we even do invitations anymore? And I always fall back to absolutely yes. Because we should be willing to make decisions. If we're not going to make a decision in public, among a community of believers, then what's the likelihood that we're going to make a private decision and be faithful and obedient to that? So I think public decisions are important and necessary. I don't think public declarations of sin are necessarily appropriate, so we're not going to pass around the microphone so you can all start confessing your sins in, in, in group. So you can rest at ease with that one. But I do think it's important that we make decisions in public. And so we're going to pray. I'll be over here. Joel will be over there. We're here to talk with you, to pray with you. The altar is open. What's the one decision? I, I think this is often the most important question to consider. What's the one decision that you can make right here, right now, that would have the greatest impact on your relationship with God? What's that one decision? What does God want you to do today? Father, help us to understand what it is that we need to do in this moment to honor and to glorify you. Father, help us to repent from our pride, repent from our our stubbornness, help us to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit to make decisions that would honor and glorify you. So in this time of invitation, Father, I pray that you are glorified in and through it all. We ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen.